Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. A couple things. Um, do I recall correctly that October is the right uh, time to plant garlic? October is an ideal time to plant garlic. Uh, with the kind of winters we've had the past few years, uh, you're probably we can stretch that into November a little bit. But uh, October has always been our traditional month to get garlic in. So don't worry about it if it's next week before you get around to it. But, uh, yeah, sooner the better on garlic at this point. Okay, and um, on planting broccoli, uh, should I use the colloidal rock phosphate on that? Will that do any good? I Yeah, I have never found that it made a real big difference. Uh, um, it, it might make a little difference, and if you've got a tub of it and you want to put a handful in the bottom of the holes, uh, they, you're certainly not going to hurt anything there, but... Uh, with some things like tomatoes, uh, it'll double your tomato production. It also works very well on peppers, very well on the eggplant. Uh, but I have to say that uh, it's just, you know, it's 100% effort for maybe 10% return when we're talking about broccoli and cauliflower and things like that. About, about the only thing that I really recommend, of course I'm going to recommend a good balanced fertilizer in there on all of your fall vegetable plants. And if it's first time you've planted the winter peas, snow peas, shell peas, whatever kind of peas you want to grow, if it's the first time you have planted into a given spot, I think it's good to inoculate the seed with a little bacteria that helps them take nitrogen from the air and turn it into fertilizer. But rock phosphate, um, I'm, I, I'd say I'm pretty neutral on it. Uh, you can try and see if it works for you, but I've never felt like I got a great deal of benefit out of it. Okay, well, I wouldn't want to waste it on there if it's not really going to <laughs> I, I'm with you, and I don't know about you, but my list of things to do is so long that even if it just saves me 30 seconds per plant, that adds up to 10 minutes or so that I can put into another project that sorely needs attention. Sure. Um, one other question. Um, my sal- uh, perennial salvias took kind of a beating in this uh Wind drought and yeah. well, just the, you know they just the parts of them are looking dead and and you know I've tried to water them but you know they're just kind of limping along but I think I'm I should be waiting until sometime in the spring before I chop those back. Well, anything that is truly dead, that's just like cutting your hair, cutting your fingernails, whatever. Um, any any limbs that are leafless and dead, might as well go ahead and take them out. Uh, the plant's not even going to know that you have done it. I most definitely would fertilize, uh, and today would be a great day for it since we got a good deal of moisture in the soil over the past few days, but I very definitely would fertilize these things because it will increase their winter hardiness and it will help them come out much stronger in the spring. But no, on the live uh, perennials, I'm not going to be cutting them back, most of them until late February. If things things that freeze back, the uh, salvia farinacea, the big blue, the indigo spires, mystic spires, all of these things that normally freeze to the ground. Now, once they have frozen, go ahead and cut them back. I mean, it uh, you're you're not again, you're not cutting green tissue, so you're not going to stimulate any new growth. But you know, coccinia and uh, all of the ones that typically freeze back. When they freeze back, go ahead and cut them back. But your woodier ones, like the Gregii, Leucantha, those, no, I'm not going to be touching them for the shears probably until late February. Okay, great. One more quick question. Yesterday I bought a bag of potting soil, and there's a, you know all kinds of ingredients, the worm castings and bat guano, and then it looks like there's a whole array of different mycorrhizae fungi and bacteria mm-hmm. in there. 
But one of the ingredients is sphagnum peat moss. And right. so I thought you said that was kind of antimicrobial. So it's a little confusing why they would have both those in there. Well, I don't agree with it, and I don't recommend. We don't sell potting soils that has sphagnum peat. They're probably more antibacterial than they are antifungal. And the fungi that you see are more likely saprophytic fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi have to be associated with the plant root, uh, whereas your, your, your fungi that break things down, they're what we call saprophytes, and they get their energy by decomposing things, by stealing energy from the carbon bonds that uh, make up our carbohydrates and the things that they are breaking down. Mycorrhizal fungi are not saprophytic. They live in close association with plant roots, and it's more of a symbiotic relationship from them where they are giving to the plants, but they are living off of carbohydrates that are bled off of the roots of living organisms. That's a minor point, but just, you know, so that you understand the difference there. There's so many different kinds of fungus out there. And uh, what you're seeing growing then, there are more likely the decomposing uh, fungi, but they're not going to be impacted the way that, you know, the 10,000 different species of bacteria will be. But uh, um, I don't like Canadian peat moss, uh, number one, because it's antimicrobial, number two, because it's a non-renewable resource, number three, because it's uh, slow to break down and doesn't really make a lot of contribution chemically to the soil. I'm sure the physical side of it it helps with soil structure a little bit but no i and and i have this argument with fox farms i i like a lot of the fox farm products but i i really don't like the fact that they do put canadian peat into a lot of their potting soils and things and uh i i I, anywhere i see a recipe or anything says canadian peat i just substitute compost and it works real well uh, they do have, I mean, that's probably the brand you're talking about, uh, they do have some compost base and some core-based soils out there that I would choose over the one that has the uh, Canadian sphagnum peat in it. Okay, well, that's all for today. I really appreciate it, Bob. Well, it's always a pleasure visiting with you. you this this is maybe, I, I truly think yesterday was the prettiest day we've had so far this fall, and today will probably either equal or exceed it. So I hope you got some good times to spend outside today, Steve. Got many things to plant. <laughs> Amen to that. Thank you, yeah, sir. All right, thanks, Bob. Certainly. Bye. And speaking of things to plant, I mean, great time to be planting so many things in the fall vegetable garden. Great time to be planting cool weather plants like, uh, oh my gosh, the cyclamen are beautiful this year. Pansies, uh, there must be 60, 80 different pansy varieties out there, a bunch of new ones this year, along with the petunias and the stock and snapdragons and dianthus. Uh, No need to have a drab yard in the winter anymore. There are lots and lots of things you can plant. Okay, Jane's going to be up next. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Bob. I got a mystery for you. Uh, I love mysteries. (laughs) Let let me put on my, uh, let me get out my long pipe and put on my uh, Sherlock Holmes hat. All right, here we go. I bought a six-pack of spinach yesterday, the little seedlings. Right. And I bought them at a reputable nursery, okay? Uh Uh-huh. And every one of them had these little tiny, I mean, think smaller than a BB-sized blue hard things mm-hmm. on the leaves. Probably. And when I looked at it under a micro, under my 
my 14X hand lens. And it looked like little crystals? Yes! Fertilizer. It's stuff that uh, has washed up or splashed up. Uh, It's a chemical fertilizer. It's not one of the worst ones out there, but uh, um, it's not something I would use. Uh, Or these spinach plants growing in little uh, the little peat pots? Um, They're in those little. uh, hmm. I mean, when you You take them out of the plastic tray, do they have like a little pressed peat moss pot that they're actually growing in, a little square? Well, hold on. Let me look because the people there, you know, I've traded here before and they're real good people. And they said they took all the little blue things off Uh and asked me if they were on all of them out there. And I said, yes. And then they said, we really shouldn't have accepted these. They're too small. (laughs) So don't plant them yet. I know exactly who they came from. And I can promise you, unless they're in jumbo packs, they're... They got those damn little pressed peat moss pots that they're growing in. And they tell you and everybody thinks, oh, the roots will just grow right through those and they will gradually dissolve. You know, back to my last caller where we were talking about Canadian peat moss, they don't break down. And they're they're just not a lot of people growing six-packs and probably don't need to mention Peterson Brothers by name, but they are probably the biggest producers of six-packs in San Antonio. And they're regular. Now, they're jumbo packs. They have learned to use the just little plastic pots, but they still produce all those small six-packs. And whenever I get a plant in a peat moss pot, even if it does a little bit of damage to roots, I peel those four peat moss sides off, and if I feel like it's just got too much in it, at the very least, I will pinch out the bottom of the pot because I have pulled up tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, things uh, years ago when I would plant things in the peat moss like everybody said to do so, and at the end of the season, those peat moss pots were still intact, and the roots were having trouble getting through there, so... Um, I realize that, you know, you don't have a lot of choices when you want to buy in six packs, but boy, when you do set those plants out, just take your thumb and forefinger and peel at least two sides off, preferably peel all four sides off the little pot and just plant it with uh, the soil and roots and your plants are going to grow a lot better and produce a lot better for you. But no, the blue you're looking at is a chemical fertilizer. You just switch over to organics immediately and uh, your plants are going to produce fine for you do you know if this is a flat leaf spinach or the curly leaf spinach what they call the savoy type spinach it's ashley okay and i don't remember which one that is but uh, we call the ones with crinkly leaves we call those savoy the ones with the flatter leaves we call non-savoy and there are lots and lots of varieties in each category. I'll just share with you my experience, and that is the flat-leaf spinaches tend to produce sooner, and they produce a lot more spinach leaves than your savoy types. Your crinkly bloomsdale is most common of the uh, uh, savoy, along with the uh, melody and some of the others. But when springtime rolls around and it starts getting hot, this flat-leaf spinaches die out a lot sooner than the curly-leaf spinaches do. So if you want, in my opinion, the best garden, if you want to have the longest-producing garden, plant a few of the flat-leaf types just for bulk production, but plant a few of the savoy types too because they're going to be going four to six weeks longer in the spring than uh, your flat-leaf forms are. I just throw that in. I hope it's useful information to you. 
It sure is. Now, when I peel off those peat pots, I, 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 you know, I try to follow the directions, and I'm, I'm real worried those, those, those uh, roots are so fine and tender. Mm-hmm. But are you saying if I do that just as careful as I can and set them at the same level they was in those little peat pots in the ground, right. that they should be all right? They should be fine, and don't worry if you mess up a few of those little roots spinach and most all of our other vegetables grow so many roots so quickly that the damage that you may do in peeling the peat moss off is going to be far outweighed by the additional roots the plant will produce from having you know their roots directly in the soil not having to try to it's like having to you know you're getting ready to run a marathon but you've got to beat with your fish. You've got to beat your way through a wooden wall before you can take <laughs> off running. And that's what those little poor little plants are doing. They're fighting and fighting and fighting to get their roots through that. And the plant next door, even though it doesn't have as many roots, uh, the person over there may not be as good a runner as you are, but they're going to have a long head start on you. They're going to be way down the track before you even get out of your house to, you know, get into the race, so to speak. That's, uh, you know, these stupid analogies come into my mind just as I'm sitting here thinking about things. But that's exactly what it is. That little plant's trying to fight its way through that wall of compressed peat moss, whereas if you peel it off, those roots can take off and grow where they want to immediately. They they get absolutely no benefit from that little pressed peat pot that is simply for the convenience of the grower. And uh, uh, I think it's a mistake, but they didn't ask me. Okay, well, then I sh- and probably I should go with four-inch instead of those little six-packs. Well, six-packs are very definitely more economical. And yeah. um, four-inch, you'll generally get a nicer plant. You'll usually get a bigger plant. And here's the thing about six-packs versus seed versus four-inch pots if if you're like me, if you've got a big garden, if you're going to plant, you know, 25 spinach plants of the same variety, then I'm either going to plant from seed or maybe even start my own little plants and set those out. But if I've got a small garden and I'm only going to plant, you know, four to six plants, I don't want them to all be the same. I want five or six different varieties out there so that I get, you know, more variation in what's growing And in that case, I think a four-inch pot is a much better buy because uh, give me the chance to have six different varieties of spinach. I'm always going to take that over having six plants of the same variety. So uh, you're going to pay more money to buy them in four-inch pots, but many times I think you get better results in the long run. So there's just a lot of things to think about. I wish gardening was as easy as digging a hole and dumping a plant in the ground. And you can do that, and you can garden that way, but I want you to be... You know, I want you to have the best garden on the block. I want you to feed as much of the food that your family eats as possible out of your own garden. So I've got to, I've got to blab a little bit more. <laughs> my, my business partner and various people tease me. Years ago, I used to have my friend Alton Grimm sit in for me, and Alton's probably the best nurseryman I have ever known. And I'd have him sit in when I was going out of town, and I would get teased. And they would say, you know, if somebody asks you a question, you say, blah, 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 blah. And if they ask Alton the same question, he says, yes. <laughs> and so I'm glad you call. I'm glad you put up with me. But I hope you understand a little bit more about what you're planting when, when you do this, Jane. I do. I have one more quick question. Okay. 
tips. I got these babies in these little peat pots. Uh-huh. What do you think about me peeling them out of there and putting them in a bigger pot right my, right now myself with some of my fine garden soil? If they are as tiny as you say, I would let them grow a little bit. I would let them grow till they have two or three sets of true leaves. And then I would look at the weather, I would look at the garden, and I would say, hmm, should I put them into a bigger pot and let them grow some more, or should I plant them directly in the ground? But right now, those little plants are so tiny, and this particular grower sells things two weeks before they ought to let them out of their greenhouse. So I don't want to break them up. I'm going to keep them exactly where they are for about two weeks. I'm going to fertilize them. I'm going to let them get just a little bigger and stronger. And at that point, I'm going to peel the peat moss pots off of them and and then decide, do I want to just put them into a bigger pot or do I want to put them in the ground? So um, you're a good gardener. Just look at it carefully and make that decision. But for now, you give them the two weeks care that they should have gotten before they let them out of their own greenhouses. Man, you just dominoed for me, Bob. I got so much more out of this than I was coming in for. I appreciate it so much. Well, it's always a pleasure, Jane. You get out and enjoy this beautiful Sunday. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, it's going to be Maggie and Matt and Darla. Maggie's first. Good morning, Maggie. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How are you this morning? I'm good, but I have a question. I don't know who my persimmon daddy is. And uh, Say that one more time. Your phone's, phone's a little hard to understand. You have a question about what? My persimmons, I don't know who the daddy is. Oh. <laughs> I have a fuyu and I have a chocolate, and uh-huh. the fuyu always gives a lot of fruits. But the, this year, and the, and the chocolate gives some. Uh-huh. This year, the chocolate did nothing, not even one flower, but I still got my fuyu, so I don't know who the daddies are. Well, see, here's a fun thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure that daddy is a real good analogy, but... Uh, uh, Fuyu, I believe, if I'm remembering right, is one of those persimmons where mommy can have the fruit without a daddy. It's called Parthenocarpy. It's when a plant goes ahead and produces a fruit, and many times a seedless fruit, not always, but uh, without... Oh, they have, each little fruit has like six big seeds and okay. nice chubby cheese, but, uh, seeds. Are they sterile? Um, maybe, maybe not. If they were produced through Parthenocarpy, yes, they will be sterile. But oh. Fuyu is also self-pollinating, so we're not gonna oh. we're not gonna play with that analogy. We get in big trouble that way. But um, they may very well just have been self-pollinated. Uh, just like methylene plum is not self-fertile, but Santa Rosa plum is self-fertile. So you may very well have fruit where. You know, mommy and daddy were the same the same plant. They uh, uh, in many plants because uh, evolutionarily, uh, it's better for the plant if you know if if it does get pollinated by a different plant. But uh, uh, many times, uh, many plants are what we call self-fertile, and they will go ahead and produce fruit uh, in nature to be to try to make sure that doesn't happen. Nature has devised many ways. Sometimes the female and the male parts of the plant are not ripe and ready at the same time. In the case of some insect-pollinated plants, such as many of the orchids, the bee or wasp or whatever pollinates the flower picks up the pollen on the way out 
not on the way in. It'll have a little mm. sticky thing that sticks to the insect's back, but it doesn't expose that and pick up the pollen until it's on the way out of the flower. It doesn't mean that it won't necessarily pollinate a separate flower on the same plant, but it increases the chance that the next flower it visits will be on a different plant. So anyway, once again, more information than you need. But uh, oh, I need it. I need it. Yeah, Fuyu may be self-fertile, so it may be self-pollinating and uh, doesn't really well, make. The fruits oh. won't be uh, the fruits that are. If it is self-fertile, the fruits are going to be of the same. Yeah. Same one. It's not well, going to be like when you say oranges, you never know what you're going to get. Well, that's not true because uh, um, even though, oh gosh, this all comes into genetic variability. Uh, if the granddaddy was a Fuyu and the great-granddaddy was a Fuyu and oh. the great-great-great-daddy was a granddaddy was a Fuyu, then yes, we're approaching homozygosity. We're approaching a what we would call an open-pollinated plant where all the seeds come fairly true. But, you know, sometimes granddaddy might have been a totally different persimmon, and even though it didn't show up in this tree, those genes can be okay. expressed a few generations down the road. Okay. So. Uh, bottom line, doesn't really matter. You've got some good persimmons to eat. Last year was a weird year. That early freeze that we had damaged a lot of the little bud primordia, uh, the things that would have formed flowers. And there are a lot of fruit trees out there, not just persimmons, but some others. Some of them bloomed, some of them didn't. But the more tender ones, the flower buds were actually frozen before we could even see the flower buds. So Hopefully, this year we're not going to be facing that, and you'll get flowers and fruit from your chocolate, from your Fuyu. Oh, my God, and that chocolate is so yummy. Oh, yes, it is. Well, plant a Tamapam, plant a Eureka, plant a Hachia. Uh, it sounds like you like persimmons. You've got several other good varieties you could be putting out there to get lots of cross-pollination. I will try. Thank you so much, sir. Great question, Maggie. Thank you for the call. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Matt and Darla and George and Liz. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, sir. Morning. Uh, topic of the morning, pecan trees. Okay. Uh, I just went out in my backyard and did a relook again, and I'm not seeing any buds or fruit or the little tassels that accompany the nuts every year. What's going on? Um, well, of course, you wouldn't expect to see at this time of year. This is something you'd see late March, early April. Okay. Um, this time, it, it, pollination on pecans, production on pecans in our area is iffy. Now, you get up around Stephenville, Texas, you get up in uh, Arkansas, there are lots of parts of the world where the weather is more consistent temperature-wise, wind-wise, Keep in mind that pecans are wind-pollinated. They're not pollinated by insects. They require a mother nature, nature to blow the pollen from tree A to tree B in order to get pecans. Throw on top of that, the pecans are divided into two groups called protogenous and protandrous. Forget about those words. But it means that some varieties produce their pollen first. Some variety produce the little nutlet first. So a lot of things have to go right for pecans to produce a really good crop and so much happens in the spring if we don't have a lot of wind we don't get good pollination if we have a lot of rain it literally and this happened last year we had so much rain it washed 
so much of the pollen out of the air, wash the pollen out of the trees before it even went airborne to have any chance to pollinate. And not a lot of trees are producing any pecans this year. There are a few varieties that produce a little bit later, a few varieties where the pollen and the nutlets were ripened at a time when there was pollen blowing around. So, um, you know, rarely are you ever going to get consistently good nut production year after year after year. Some varieties are better than others. Uh, Desirable is one that seems to do extremely well most years. Then we have the whole Indian series, Mohawk, Wichita, Sioux, all of those. Um, then we've got to throw in the problem that Wichita is a little bit susceptible to scab fungus. So lots of different things conspire to decide whether, you know, your tree is going to produce um, nuts or not. But this time of year, if you've had nuts, uh, probably the squirrels got all of them because there were so few. And looking up at the trees, you would see that they're beginning to drop their leaves. You might see the old husk from the few pecans that did form, but you're sure not going to see any reproductive structures uh, in October, November on pecan tree in this part of the world. Yeah, because last year and the year before, I've usually had, I've got the little paper shell. Uh Uh-huh. And last year, I had a really, really good crop coming out of the tree, and they were starting to drop about this time all the way up through the end of November. Right. And you've just brought up another point. Uh, because our soils are poor, uh, rarely does any pecan tree produce a really good crop two years in a row. Now, you'll en- enhance your likelihood of getting good pecans by fertilizing in the fall, by making certain that that root flare is exposed, and um, uh, we seem to be moving back into a wetter period. So especially with the fertilizing, there are things you can do to increase your chances of a good crop next year, but... Uh, um, <laughs> it's like they say about agriculture is legalized gambling with worse odds, <laughs> but there, there are a lot of reasons that neither you nor most people in our part of the world really got a good pecan crop this year. But, Hey, you know, it's kind of like the Cowboys and the Spurs wait till next year. We're bound to do better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would uh, Fanic carry some of that good fertilizer? Any good fertilizer. Yeah, Fanic's got plenty of good fertilizers, but don't feel like you have to buy anything special. That same fertilizer you put on your grass, your trees, your shrubs, whether it's Maestro Grow or Medina or Nature's Creation, um, you're paying more money that you don't need to if you go out and buy something that specifically says pecan tree fertilizer because the company probably put the same fertilizer in that bag as they did in everything else. Maybe they threw in a little extra zinc, and then they charged you a bunch more money for it. So you don't have to buy anything special for your pecans, but it doesn't do any good while it's in the bag. you got to get it, and you got to put it out. Uh, have you had any kind of a halfway decent crop in your trees that you've got up there? Yeah, my trees... Uh, and I've probably got 20, 30 pecan trees. Uh, probably half of them have zero nuts. Uh, the ones that do have nuts probably have 10% of what they usually produce. Okay, then don't feel so bad. No, don't feel bad at all. The oak trees, on the other hand, there's plenty of mast out there for the squirrels and the deer and the hogs and the coyotes and everything else that eats them. But uh, nobody's making many pecan pies around my part of the world. Yeah, I'm, I think this is going to be a... Uh skimpy season for thanksgiving oh well Well, you can always go to natural grocers or somewhere like that and find some pretty good organic pecans and uh 
It uh, By the time you get through adding all the sugar and other good things, it doesn't take a lot of pecans to make a good pecan pie. And uh, I don't know if you've ever done it. My grandfather used to toast pecans and put into uh, the dressing uh, this what we stuffed in the turkey. And I can't get anybody in my group of friends that, that cook turkeys, I can't get anybody to put toasted pecans in their dressing. But try it sometime if you have it. It really adds a delicious flavor to it. But, uh, yeah, I'll go see Natural Grocers or somebody like that to get some good pecans this Thanksgiving. Okay. Well, I'll just grin bear for the rest of the year. <laughs> and hope better next. Yeah, wait till next year. Matt, it's always good to talk to you. You have a great Sunday, and we'll talk again. And let me move on and say good morning, Darla. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Well, I'm at it again. I'm trying to root something. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was out in the pasture yesterday, and I discovered a native plant that I don't remember ever seeing, and I was raised here. But I'm, I took four-leaf uh, tip cuttings, and I put them in perlite, but and I've heard you say a million times, but I forgot. Do I need to put drain holes in those little containers? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And your cuttings, you would have a better chance if you would soak those cuttings in seaweed, uh, seaweed water mix for maybe twenty minutes before you put them in the perlite. And uh-huh. m- most importantly, at this time of year, unless you have a really warm, bright greenhouse. Um, ask somebody to give you a propagating mat for Christmas if you don't already have one. They they make real very little compact ones that are maybe 12 by 18 inches along with bigger ones. They simply plug in, but they give you that nice warm bottom heat that really does help things mm-hmm. to root. Well, I don't have one at the time, but I got home after dark last night, and I just stuck them in that perlite, uh, had some little uh, water bottles, and mm-hmm. I cut the top off and put them in that and just literally filled it with water. I do have a south window that I can keep them in for right now until I can get a propagating mat. Well, uh, punch punch plenty of holes in the bottom okay. of those plastic things and put them in a saucer so you don't mess up your yeah. window still. But they do exactly. not want to stand in water because they will form a different kind of root in water than they do in right. soil. Yeah. And then they may well, go through a lot of shock when you try to pot them into yeah. regular soil. Is there any possibility uh, that I can get in touch with you at the nursery one day? This next week, where I can send you a picture of it, so you can tell me what this plant is. I'm uh, usually at the nursery uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, or my day to work in the country. Uh, but yeah, you can uh, you can call over there, get Wendy or Donna to give you an email that they'll send it, and they will they'll usually be sure that I get a chance to take a look at it. Doesn't mean I can be sure that I can identify it, but I know yeah. a, I know a lot it of plants. It is just such a beautiful thing, and all these years I've never remember seeing it it's kind of a chartreuse color uh-huh. it's not a bright emerald green and it grows about three feet tall and at least that wide and it doesn't look like any kind of animal eats on it and uh, it, it grows right on the precipice of a rocky hill okay any flowers uh, have you seen any flowers or I anything on not a flower bud at all i don't think it does flower how big are how big are the leaves they're probably about an uh, inch and a half long, and they're oval-shaped with a tip. And the, the leaves, I don't remember what it's called, but they have the little lines that come down the leaf. Mm-hmm. On the the veins, yeah. Um, look up. The only thing I'm seeing around my ranch that comes close to matching that description right now is called a wafer, W-A-F-E-R, a wafer ash. 
wafer ash. Yeah, look that up, and uh, uh, you know, it's if there's lots of acorns and things to eat, the deer leave them alone in a really short year as far as uh, things to eat. Uh, even the cattle will graze on them. They don't make a tree. They make more of a bushy growth, but for something that's lime green that's growing right now, wafer ash would be my first guess. But uh, see if you can get me a picture, and I can tell you a lot more. Well, whatever it is, it does not need very much water because <laughs> before the rain and any water that any rain that comes goes right down the hill. Yeah, you know, down the rocky slope, and they they were just beautiful and crisp looking, and you know, just like they'd been freshly watered. Mm-hmm. And I know if I get them to grow when I plant them in my yard, I'm going to have to put up put some rocks in the soil so it'll get good drainage <laughs> well not necessarily put some good compost uh or something like that but anyway well check out wafer ash and see if it looks anything like that darla i will and by the way for your customers that use medina products i was at gill's nursery in corpus friday and discovered they now have Medina has to grow, I mean, Medina growing green in five-pound bags. Very good. Which is wonderful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Gills, Sally and James have been friends for many, many years. They're making some changes down there, and I think they're going to be for the better. So uh, tell them I said hello when you're in there, and um, glad you're you're finding what you need. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. I'll, I'll check on that way for ash, and I'll poke some holes in those little containers and Keep them as warm as I can. <laughs> it sounds good, Darla. We'll All talk right. again. Bye. All right, we're going to visit with George and then Liz. You could be next. Give that number a call, 210-599-5555. And I say good morning, George. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Ah, uh, just a beautiful day out there. When it warms up, it's going to be close to a perfect day. Yes, sir. I've got a maple tree that's about... 20, 25 feet maybe from my house, and uh, uh, it's got a wide split in the trunk and uh, and dead wood. The split is maybe three, four inches uh, by, oh, maybe three feet. Okay. And, we got, uh, and there's termites in it. Okay. And uh, I'm concerned about it. Being so close to the house, uh, didn't know if I could. There's something I could do to put to kill them out, or whether I needed to call. No, do not call tree. an exterminator. Realize that termites are a normal thing. I would be worried right. that you lived on a toxic waste dump if there weren't termites in your yard, and right. the termites from your tree are not going to spread to your house. Uh, um, I, I mean, termites are basically a type of ant. Sure, a female termite can come in, lay eggs, um, but our termites, they actually live in the ground, and then they climb up or they tunnel up either inside or outside the tree or other source to get to some dead wood to eat on. So I, I'm concerned about the tree, but I'm not concerned about your house. No worries whatsoever there. If you want to mix up a little bit of orange oil and water, put about two ounces of orange oil in a gallon of water and just spray everywhere you see the termites. That'll kill the termites. Uh, it'll even go through the bark and kill boars and things underneath the bark. But uh, I'm a little concerned about what what kind of maple tree is this? Is it, is it a silver maple or what kind? I have no idea. Okay. 
Um, a lot of people 10, 12, 15 years ago planted a silver maple that all your box stores and all your uh, not-so-professional nurseries were selling called the silver maple. And sadly, they grow very quickly. They are very beautiful. They live about 15 or 20 years, and then they start having many, many problems. And if indeed what you're looking at is the silver maple, you can extend its life a bit by making sure the root flare is exposed, by fertilizing regularly, by watering when we're in the kind of drought that we have just are starting to come out of. But I would be thinking about what you're going to replace that tree with. Now, if it were a big tooth maple, if it were a shantung, if it were one of these ones that are better quality maples, I really can't believe you would be having that much of a problem. But uh, if it is one of the better maples, fertilizing, deep watering, exposing the root flare, chances are that tree will survive and come out without any problem. But my suspicion is it's probably an old silver maple. It's kind of like an old ash tree. You can stretch out its life, but it's really kind of on its last legs. But don't worry about this uh, termite spreading to your home. That's not an issue here. Okay. What would be good to, to um, fertilize with? Same stuff you put on your grass. Medina Growing Green, Nature's Creation Premium Lawn Food, Maestro Grows Texas Tea, uh, Espoma makes one they call Plant Tone. There are a lot of good general purpose organic fertilizers, and every one of them would help that tree. And don't just feed the sick tree. Feed every tree, every shrub, uh, everything in your landscape. Okay. Uh, one more question. You had mentioned uh, last week or whatever about two different types of ryegrass. And, yeah. Uh, seems like it was a company was. Brandenburg. Brandenburg is probably the biggest ryegrass company in the world. Uh, they make, they have several different separate species of both annual and perennial rye. Uh, we carry one they make called Pantera, which is a, uh, uh, it's a blend of three annual ryegrasses for overseeding in the winter months. Um, some nurseries call it SOS, stands for super overseeding or something like that. But there are lots of different ryegrasses out there. Um, the only ryegrasses that are, well, different from just overseeding ryegrasses, there's a type of rye called Elbon rye that is used as a trap crop for nematodes. We plant it anywhere we may have had root knot nematodes. The nematodes bury into the roots. They can't get out. They're trapped and they die. But um, beyond that, I much prefer the dwarf ryegrasses, whether they're annual or perennial. The one to stay away from is this one they call Oregon ryegrass, which is just a mess. Gets awful tall, gets so waterlogged, you simply can't cut it with your mower. But any of the dwarf ryegrasses, I think, would be good for overseeding or just covering up some mud until you're ready to plant your permanent grass. Okay, well, would any of those be good to put down? I've got a... a, a walk area that the dogs go over it's well yeah any of them any of them could be planted in that area but no ryegrass is going to be as tough and foot traffic resistant as something like bermuda ah to the phone lines like to say there are two open lines you've been getting a busy signal It'll be a real good time to dial it's going to be liz first and then mark good morning liz hi there how are you doing i'm good how are you today good sir I'm all right. Uh, we spoke last weekend on a damaged pecan tree that 
is a goner already. My question is the benefit, and I'm seem to be having the same problem as the last caller, the man that spoke uh-huh. to you on his maple tree. I have different ants. I live out in the country, so mm-hmm. they're everywhere. And I've been doing the beneficial nematodes and whatever else I can do. But they seem to come back, and I'm sure they're tunneling everywhere because I'm very conscious of that. I feel like I'm going to sink in one day uh, <laughs> because of the tunnels. I'm serious. That's yeah. how I feel. Anyway, yeah. getting back to the trees that I have because I don't want them because I actually see them. My question is beneficial nematodes. If I put beneficial nematodes at the root flare, do you think that might help? Well, it's it, this is a very complex question. Beneficial nematodes will kill most any ants that have deep burrows down into the soil. Now, there are there are hundreds, in fact, there are thousands of kinds of ants out there, many of which do not live in the soil. They live up above ground. They may live in decaying wood. Beneficial nematodes will do a very good job of eliminating fire ants, of eliminating subterranean termites. Any kind of ant that lives in the soil, beneficial nematodes will very definitely control. But most of your wood-eating ants, they don't go down into the soil, so nematodes can't climb. They can't get up and get to them up above ground. So they are partially the answer. Now, here are a couple of things about wood-eating ants. Number one, if they're in your home, you need to get rid of them. You can call an exterminator, although many people I know use nothing more than orange oil and water. Have a friend who discovered she had wood-eating ants in her shutters. Uh, she made up a strong solution of orange oil. About I think she used about eight ounces to a gallon. She sprayed the shutters, as I suggested that she do. And everything seemed to be fine. She had a builder friend that said, oh, no, Stephanie, you better call an exterminator. Uh, Those ants could be so bad. Exterminator came and took the shutters off her window and said, lady, I don't know what you did, but you killed all the ants, so you don't need me. So uh, it, it depends on the nature of the ant problem that you have as to whether you want to call for professional help. But I can tell you, spinosad, orange oil, even a combination of the two will go a long way toward getting rid of wood-eating ants. Now, here's the thing about ants in a tree. In a dead tree, they're going to get in there and eat the wood. The only wood that these ants eat is dead wood. And if you've got a dead pecan tree, at some point it should be cut down before it falls down because it will fall down. It will damage whatever's underneath it. Um, so the ants, whether they're ants there or there are not ants there, you still need to think about getting rid of this tree. A live tree, uh, even, even the 800 year old pecan tree up in Weatherford that Howard Garrett and I talk about all pecan trees, the center portion of the tree is basically dead wood It's wood called xylem it's a tissue that has no nuclei in the cells. It's basically dead wood. And the ants may make a home. They may burrow into that dead wood. And, you know, you can get rid of them or not. But they are not doing that much damage. The professional arborists that I deal with tell me that the latest research shows that if you have a hollow tree 
And basically, you know, every old pecan tree is just a hollow tree waiting to happen because you've got dead wood in the center of it. But even a tree that is totally hollow, if it has two, three inches of wood around the edges of that cavity, it's 80% as strong as it was when it was absolutely solid wood. Uh, looked at uh, an old tree with one of my county commissioner friends this week that uh, somebody, uh, a less experienced tree guy, had told them, oh, there's a hollow in that tree. It's probably going to fall down. Hollow trees are very close to being as strong as trees that don't have a hollow, especially a long-lived tree like a pecan or a live oak or something like that. So I'm not going to panic about the ants. You can kill them with orange oil. You can kill them with spinosad. But if you have a dead pecan tree, at some point it probably needs to come down ants or no ants. And whether you holler for professional help or not, that's strictly up to you. Um, There are times that I think an exterminator is necessary. If you have termites around the foundation of your home, beneficial nematodes will take care of them. If you have termites coming up through what we call the penetrations in the slab, which is, unfortunately, most builders basically leave an opening to the ground where they bring your plumbing pipes through. The better ones will put down a stainless steel mesh that will stop the termites. But if you've got termites that have created a colony directly underneath your slab, way out toward the center of it, there's no way the homeowner can get rid of those. You're going to have to holler for professional help. I would deal with a company like Apple or ABC that uses organic techniques. But, you know, like any problem, number one thing is understanding the problem. And what you're looking at is not really a problem, uh, except that long-term the tree is going to fall apart and you don't want it to be falling on your home or your car or your pup tent or whatever else. But um, don't worry about the ants. They're a nuisance, but they are not really a threat. They're definitely a nuisance. Okay, (laughs) so the orange oil, the eight ounces to the gallon. So am I going to just throw that whole gallon around the base of the tree? You're going to spray it on wherever you see the ants. You're going to pour it on. And actually, where you're pouring it on, don't don't use that much orange oil. It'd be wasteful. You can put about two ounces of orange oil for a drench. And that'll do just as much good. You make four times as much with the same amount of orange oil. What you put in a little hand mister and spray on, I'd go up to the eight ounces per gallon. But pour a drench, uh, no more than two ounces per gallon, and just use it where you see an ant mound. Uh, if you want an alternative product, Nature's Creation makes something they call mound drench that uh, also uses an herbal oil, happens to use rosemary oil and wintergreen as opposed to orange oil, but it's another very effective ant killer. But either one of those I'm I'm perfectly fine with. Be careful about using it around live plants. Don't pour it through a pot. I mean, everybody's pot plants, it seems like sooner or later you're going to get a fire ant mound started in that pot. We've got to dilute it down even more than that because even at two ounces per gallon, it probably would burn the roots of your plants. But out around your trees, out in the yard, no, I'm going to go ahead and make it about two ounces per gallon. And uh, I don't kill the fire ants and things out of my pastures because they control ticks, but I don't like them in my vegetable garden or my flower beds. So uh, they die either with mound drench or with orange oil when they're around my yard. And there have been a lot of them around. With all this rain, uh, fire ants especially are making, you know, big, big numbers of the queens which fly off to start new mounds. So don't feel singled out. If you say I don't have any fire ants, I think you just don't know what you're looking at because everybody's got some fire ants right now. 
Okay, good. The other question is wildflower uh, wild seed. I can throw that out right now. Great time to put it out. In fact, close to a perfect time. We've got wet soil to begin with and more rain forecast, so today would be an incredible day for planting wildflower seed. I don't really have to do a major job with that, correct? You, What you want with wildflowers is you want the seed to make good contact with the soil, with the dirt. You don't want it sitting okay. up on top of leaves or grass clippings or things like that. So in All most right. cases, you just throw it out. If you feel like you have a lot of detritus on the surface of the ground, just take a hard rake, get out there, and just drag it through the area so that that seed can hit the soil. That's all you have to do to plant wildflowers. Last question. I have a tree, uh, and I'm sure it's a Monterey oak or something, but that thing hasn't grown very much, which I feel that it should be bigger. I believe I might have planted it too deep. Mm -hmm. I'm wanting to take it out. I guess right now would be a good time. I don't think I would take it out. I think I would just you know, dig down around the trunk, expose that root flare. If you have to dig out just a little bit, just make kind of a bowl around the tree. That would be a much easier way to water the tree. It wouldn't hurt anything. If you find that you have to dig down significantly, one of my arborist friends with the tree spade, they exposed the root flare in a pecan tree in a house over north of Alamo Heights. They had to go down in six feet to find the root flare. And they oh ended up goodness. kind of building a silo around the tree. You don't have to have a, a big, you don't have to have an elevator shaft around the tree. You just have to have enough room for the tree to grow some and to have good air circulation. But I'm I'm not going to go to the damage you're going to do to the tree trying to dig it up and replant it. I'm just going to start clearing the soil around until I get down to the root flare. And if it's down four, six, eight inches, just taper it up. You've got a nice little well there to hold the water when you water and your tree will grow a whole lot better and certainly better than it would if you disturbed the roots by, you know, digging the whole thing up and starting over. All righty, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Great questions, Liz. Thank you for the call this morning. Thank <laughs> you. you. Have certainly. A good day. You too. Bye. All right, back to gardening and uh, straight back to the phone lines. It is going to be Pete, Janie, James, and Anna. Good morning, Pete. Good morning. Good morning. Morning, sir. I have. I have uh, an old kefir pear. Mm -hmm. It's very good, except that it looks to me like it's about 85% dead. And I'd like to, uh, it's got blight, you know, as pear trees, I guess, almost always get. But I'd like to cut that one down and plant another pear tree. If I plant it close to the pear tree I have now, is there any higher risk of uh, the thing getting contaminated or getting the... No, pear, pear trees are rated according to their blight resistance. And it's uh, the blight is actually spread by the bees as they move from flower to flower. And as long as you're planting a blight-resistant variety, kefir's sort of moderate on the blight-resistant list. Uh, there are lots of choices out there, Moonglow, Seckel, Lacante. Uh, Warren, there, there are lots of blight-resistant pears. I wouldn't give up on that old tree. I, I say that without having seen it because pears can live a hundred years. They're probably our longest-lived. Yeah. Those are persimmons or super long-lived fruit trees. And you know, exposing the root flare, flare feeding things like that, th- that tree might be salvageable. But in any event, the, we do two things to try to keep our trees from getting the bacterial fire blight. Number one, we always plant blight-resistant varieties. Number two, we stay away from the things that cause 
uh, or that are most susceptible to blight, and that is soft succulent growth, which can be caused by chemical fertilizers, by too much water, by over pruning. We virtually never prune a pear tree other than to take out any sprouts off the rootstock or to take out dead limbs. But uh, if you stay away from the synthetic nitrogen, if you stay away from too much water, if you stay away from pruning and you've got a good variety tree, chances are you're rarely, if ever, going to see fire blight on that tree. All right. Well, I appreciate that. My my second question concerns mountain laurels. I've got a just one of those earthen pots. Uh-huh. Had, it dissolves over time. Under, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sitting underneath the mountain laurel, and of course it got leaves and other stuff in here. And, and some of those seeds that fell in there have sprouted. They're about uh-huh. three, or, three or four inches tall now, and I'd sure like to plant them somewhere else, but I'm afraid if I try to take them out and transplant them, I'll just kill them. That's my experience. Well, it, it, can, that... I just, uh, can I just drill holes in that pot and bury, you know, plant them in the pot, and would the roots eventually break the Oh, yeah. it up and let it grow. Yeah, but you don't want to have 10 plants, you know, growing in an area that's 15 inches across. Um, right. When you're right. digging little small trees like that, you ought to be more successful than that. You ought to probably ought to have 80% of them survive. Just, you know, try to keep a ball of, uh, of soil intact around the roots. Water them in with Super Thrive. That is the closest thing to a miracle product that I've ever seen. Uh, Mount laurels are difficult. Now, if you let them get 12, 18 inches tall, you're going to kill a lot more of them. But when they are of a size where basically if you could get one good trowel full of soil intact around the root ball of that little bitty tree you're transplanting, you know, 8 out of 10 of them ought to survive and do very well for you. All right. Well, I'll give it a go. But do this. Get yourself a good little hand spade. And where you've got this little five-inch tree coming up, move out about two inches all the way around and stick that spade straight down into the ground. Go 360 degrees around this little tree and then try to carefully lift that ball of soil, that small tree, without breaking up the roots and I think you're going to find out your, you know, Johnny Mountain Laurel seed. Uh, I think you're going to be a whole lot more successful. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. You're sure welcome, Pete. Thanks for the call. Take care. <laughs> Certainly. Bye. Goodbye. All right. Next up is Janie. Good morning, Janie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Well, let's see if I can say it right. Okay. I have a sister-in-law that has this beautiful little bush plant. Uh-huh. And it, and it gives her flowers. Uh-huh. But she said that she noticed that one of the limbs were dead, so she broke it and took it off. But she noticed another one was doing the same thing. And uh, I looked down on the ground, and I saw a bunch of little bitty ants. And you were just talking about the ants that don't eat the roots, right? right. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, they can cause other problems. Do you grow geraniums, Janie? No, not really. Okay, Uh, because the citronella is basically just a geranium. It's just a special kind of geranium. Most of the problems that I see with geraniums come from staying too wet. Uh, They don't want to stay bone dry, but they want half as much water as a begonia or an impatience or pansies or just about anything else. And if you're having some issues with citronella, I'll bet you're watering it too often. Well, that I didn't answer 
All I know is I bent down and I saw some little ants. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, get something to kill those because I thought that having a because it, it happened to me. Uh, one of my bushes with flowers, mm-hmm. it uh, it was eaten by those little bitty ants okay. because it was dry. Yep. You know. Well, so I you just said that if it's too dry, they make their little nest down there. Some of them. Well, they can make their nest whether it's wet or dry or anything else. You have to be careful in killing that colony that you don't burn and damage the roots of any plant. And if you make your orange oil too strong, you can burn the roots. So uh, I'll give you a choice. Either make a really dilute orange oil solution, maybe about a teaspoon of orange oil in a quart of water, and you can pour that through. That'll kill the ants without hurting your plants. Or a lot of times you can just use some dry diatomaceous earth and just sprinkle it all over, you know, the top of the root ball, all around everywhere you see the ants, um, sprinkle some diatomaceous earth. Now, it needs to stay dry for 24 hours or so because a diatomaceous earth, or DE as we call it, doesn't work once it gets wet. But the easiest thing to start with, because it's non-poisonous, non-toxic, no way it could hurt you. In fact, some people eat it. Uh, you just take a handful of diatomaceous earth and just sprinkle all over, all around, wherever you see those ants. And that's probably going to get rid of them. If it doesn't, then we'll go with the super dilute orange oil and make a drench out of it. But start with the diatomaceous earth. Cheap, easy, and safe. Well, I told her to go to the nursery. Uh, I can't think of the name of it. You're always talking about it. Uh, I told her to go over there and uh, tell her the situation. And Mike or Mark will help her. That's Fanix Nursery. Mike and Mark are the Fanix boys. Yeah. And uh, they will help you and tell you exactly what to do. <laughs> well, if she doesn't, if Mark or Mike are off or whatever, and she can't find the help she needs, you tell her to start with diatomaceous earth, and if that doesn't get rid of the ants, then to get you a small one-pint container of orange oil, and uh-huh. you can make up a real dilute solution. It smells wonderful. It's one yeah. of the best cleaners you can use around your home, and you just won't believe how good it'll make the house smell. But start with the DE, go to Orange Oil if you need it, and yeah, Phoenix is always a good place to go get some help. Okay, you said DE. Diatomaceous earth. Down. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot, okay? My pleasure, Janie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Well, let's see what James is up to today. Good morning, James. Good morning, Bob. Morning, I'm sir. Out here planting ryegrass in the middle of a cow pasture, <laughs> having a wonderful time on it. Um, my questions are um, uh, gladiolas in flower beds. Can you plant them in the ground now? I have some bulbs that I didn't plant last year. And be better to wait it. till be better to wait till spring, considering that we don't know how cold the weather is going to be. If you want to plant those gladiolas in pots and be able to protect them from a hard freeze. They're not really bulbs. They're something called a corm, and we don't plant them too deeply, but, you know, you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. It's not the best time to plant them, but it's hard to store them from year to year. So if they were mine, I'd probably put them in little four-inch pots, water them, take care of them, even let them sprout and grow but I'm not going to be putting them out until we're past the danger of a hard freeze. Now, there's a whole different kind of gladiolus called a Byzantine glad that is one that just stays in the ground year after year after year. But I suspect what you have are the bigger, showier glads. But 
Uh, you put them in the ground when the soil's already cold and wet, they're probably not going to do well. The bulbs are probably just going to rot. So I would All either right. either try to store them or better still plant them up in little small pots and grow them through the winter that way. All righty. Oak trees. Now I've got uh, several rent houses and I've got uh, some native oak trees. I thought they were oak, waxy leaf, uh-huh. but they produce a blackberry instead of an acorn. Yeah, that's not an that's not an oak tree. That is probably a tree which is called a gum bumelia, B U M E L I A. It's a good tree, it's a native tree. It's not going to get as big as a native oak tree. It's not going to spread out as wide and it's going to drop its leaves in the winter. But it is a good tough native tree. Unfortunately, and uh not going to have this problem in town, but out in the country that is one of the favorite foods of porcupines. I Porcupines are one of two things I shoot on site. Um, and uh, porcupines like to girdle and eat those trees. But what you have there, it's not, a, it's not an oak tree, but it is a good tree. It's perfectly normal for it to lose its leaves in the winter. And if you look it up somewhere, I think you'll find B-U-M-E-L-I-A. Gumbumelia is what you're looking at. All right. On regular live oak trees, I want to plant some five, six-foot-tall trees, Uh 20-gallon pots. Is it okay to stick them in the ground this month? Oh, this is the best month. uh, October, November are the two best months of the year for planting trees. About where are you located, James? Oh, Corns, Goliad County. Okay. Do you have any oak wilt around you? No. Okay, because that's that's the one problem with our native live oaks is that they are susceptible to oak wilt. There are things you can do to prevent it. There are things you can do to cure it, but it's best just not to get it in the first place. Um, Check out sometime what they call a Mexican live oak, also known as a white oak, also sold as a Monterey oak. It's actually faster growing than our native oak trees, it's longer-lived, and it's uh, very little, if at all, affected by oak wilt. So um, on your properties, of course, never plant a lot of the same kind of tree because if all the trees are the same and we get a disease that hits that particular kind of tree, then we've lost everything. Get some variety in there, and maybe you can include some Mexican live oaks along with our native live oaks because they don't get the oak wilt. They grow faster. Uh, they're semi-evergreen. They have a bigger leaf, but they're sure a beautiful tree and uh, I think are very much the better choice in areas where you have oak wilt and a good choice uh, whether you have oak wilt or not. All right. Sounds good. Enjoy your show. Listen to it every week. I sure appreciate it, James. You have a wonderful Sunday. I, I think this, if uh, if it's as pretty as yesterday, it'll be one of the prettiest days of the fall. So sure hope you're yeah, able to get out and enjoy. all year. <laughs> waited all year for this weekend. Uh, <laughs> hey, you get out and enjoy. And uh, and if you're going to be hunting next weekend, you have a good good day of it there as well. It's good to talk to you. And thank Thanks. you. Bye. All right. We seem to go from having... Uh, uh, lines absolutely jam full. Having a couple available right now. There are two lines open. You know the number, 210-599-5555. We're going to talk to Anna and then to Vicki. And Anna is up first. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Bob. Greetings good morning. Ohio. Yes, indeed. How are things in the Midwest? Well, it's starting to get cold. We went through about a spell of a week of absolutely gorgeous day, the kind that people would move to have if it was year-round. Uh-huh. This week, it's going to drop down to in the 30s. 
Well, where my friends are in Wyoming, they had four degrees a couple of mornings ago. So, yeah, winter's on its way to the northern tier as well as the southern tier. But uh, you guys can keep the super cold stuff and the snow up there. (laughs) What's going on with your plants? I agree. Um, We have uh, 10 acres, and on two sides of it are uh, some soybean and corn farmers. Okay. I have no idea if they spray Roundup. All I've seen is that anhydrous ammonia mm-hmm. uh, mowing around. Well, the, the runoff from their fields comes down into our property, into a pond, and our pond has been overwhelmed with cattails. Uh-huh. And our pond is down about three or four feet, and I was out there cutting uh, cattails and pulling the roots up and everything, and I've been debating whether to compost or just burn them. What do you think? Um. How mature are the 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 cattail, which of course is the reproductive structure? How mature are the seeds on that? Because you know they look, they remind me kind of a ball on a sycamore tree. When they get to a certain point, they just explode with hundreds of little seeds. If they are close to that point, um, if you can in effect bury them in the bottom of a compost pile, that's fine. Otherwise, I'd sure be tempted to put them on the burn pile. And I get them burned before they explode. Okay, now I cut off all that part of it, but uh-huh. I talk about the actual stalks and the roots and everything. No. All the greenery that's, you know, three, four feet tall. No, that's all good the- organic material. I compost it. Okay, I just wasn't sure about the, the unknown drain off from the. Uh, no, of all the nasty stuff out there, anhydrous ammonia is probably one of the least offensive. There's no doubt that it's you know, destructive to soil life, but because it is an ammonia, in effect, it is a cation, it does bind to the soil, it uh, doesn't run off nearly as badly as the nitrate fertilizers do to cause pollution and things like that in all your waterways. It's not something I would choose to use, but uh, it's way ahead of a lot of things that Midwestern farmers are using right now. Uh, my big deal on the corn and the soybeans would be the genetic modification. And, uh, um, you know, you're a, you're a thinking person who loves to learn. Uh, stream uh, this new film, which is called Secret Ingredients. Yeah. I think with your background in medicine and, you know, veterinary science, you would get a lot out of this film. And uh, it's all about problems with corn and soybean and a few other things that are genetically modified. I wish you could get your neighbors to watch it. Uh, I love soybeans. I love corn, obviously, but I'm almost afraid to eat it out anymore because so much of it is genetically modified. But uh, um, if you know your neighbors, if your neighbors are reasonable people, talk to them about using non-GMO seed and uh, your property will stay a lot cleaner in the future as well. But you don't think anything, If even if they did use Roundup, it wouldn't come through in the cattails? It's not going to come through in the cattails because it's not that much of it is absorbed. It's nasty stuff. I wouldn't want it in the environment. I, you know, if they're not nice neighbors, I threaten to sue them. Uh, tell them you're going to get, uh, you're going to have your soil analyzed. And if you find Roundup residue in it, uh, they're going to have to pay the remediation cost. And uh, maybe, you know, I, I like to be nice as long as I can, but you don't want to make me mad. I promise you, you don't want me as your enemy. You want me as your friend, which I am. 
but uh, people who knowingly contaminate other people's properties uh, should have to pay the consequences. Yeah. Okay. Got that noted. Yeah. Um, I also planted a salmon-colored uh, canna, mm-hmm. and it produced some seeds. Would those come through uh, if I plant them? Um, they will certainly grow. Whether they will come true as far as color, you're not going to know until you plant them and see. Uh, they probably, they uh, let's just say they have a strong chance of coming true, but we've got two things going on here. It's not just color, but most of the cannas that are sold now are more dwarf, genetically dwarfer varieties, the Fitzers and some of the other new strains of cannas. The things that come from seed may very well be the old-fashioned cannas that are going to grow taller than you are. Uh, so the uh, only way to know what you've got is to plant it and see. Okay, okay, because the one, the, all, all I remember on the label said that it was compact, so yeah. I, I bet you're going to be right on that. <laughs> well, I see it in Coreopsis, I see it in cannas, I see uh, a lot of things that have been bred to be more compact strains, but most of these things are propagated through meristematic tissue culture to maintain that same genetics. And again, I'm thinking of uh, some of the little yellow coreopsis. You'll see a bed planted out there, and if it's got 50 plants in it, 47 of them are going to be compact, and the other three are going to be three feet tall. Uh, and you go and pull those out, and but if um, you, you're just never going to know what you're going to get when you're mixing two different. Uh, package of genetic materials, so to speak, to make a viable seed. Okay, okay. Um, my last thing is I planted a lot of butternut squash this year and got a tremendous crop, uh-huh. and I'm seeing that some of the squash is sweet and some of the squash is not. Is there some reason for that? Well, of course, sweet squash is higher in sugar. Sugar is the product of photosynthesis, and Um, All I can really surmise is that, uh, um, you know, some of it produced and matured at a, you know, at a brighter time and you wound up with what we call the bricks, the measure of sugar in the sap was higher in some than it was in the others. Now, butternut squash, of course, is one of those squashes that keep um, as it as it ages, even after it's picked you can have some changes occur between sort of an exchange between sugar and starch, and you may find that with a little age, some of your stored squash tastes even better. But uh, I'm not a big grower of winter squash, so there are probably other people that can answer that question better than me. Okay, sounds good. And I'm going to give that uh, uh, suggestion that Howard Garrett talked about yesterday about putting hair uh-huh. out there to keep the squash vine borers out or squash <laughs> bugs or whatever it was. Well, as many years as you worked with the military, you know, at one point <laughs> they found Lackland Air Force Base. There was actually a company because you know how many young cadets <laughs> lose all their hair the day they join uh, the Air Force and come to Lackland, and they were actually processing that and turning it into fertilizer. So, uh, yeah, it's high in protein, which means it's got a lot of nitrogen in it, which means that it could be, uh, could be a good fertilizer source. Yeah, I used to go over there with a big bag and collect the hair from the <laughs> training side. Right. And I, I'm sure um, my house, when I sold it, they'll probably discover all sorts of clumps <laughs> of hair all over the backyard and wonder what was going on back there. 
Well, mine too, but in my case, it'll be the hair of black labs rather than human hair. But uh, all a whole different story. Anna, it's good to talk to you. You guys stay warm up in Ohio, and we'll visit again. Thanks, you too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, let's get back to gardening here. No changes on the board. Vicki, Mark, Terry, and Kathy. And Vicki's first. Good morning, Vicki. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Well, thanks for I calling. Have, I have a friend that's in Fredericksburg. She has some large shrubs that are in front of her house that are really pretty. They're um, plum delights or Chinese yeah. witch hazel. And there's one particular bush that looks like it's dead. All of the leaves are brown. They're on the shrub. Mm-hmm. And this particular shrub has four trunks coming up out of the ground um, off of one root system. Three right. of those trunks are look are the ones that look like they're dead, all the leaves on those. One of them is, is okay. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of greenery. Um, close to the trunks, but otherwise, I asked her about it. She said she could snap off branches, so it's it's dying there. I suggested to her that she cut back all the dead and pull mulch away from the trunk because her landscapers had piled a bunch of mulch up yep. around them. Right. And um, I suggested she drench it real good with some Super Thrive. <laughs> And you need to be in the business, Vicky. You're doing, you're doing, telling her the same thing I would tell her. Uh, which hails hazel's an interesting plant. Doesn't do as well in San Antonio because we're warmer. Fredericksburg is sort of borderline, but it's still a sensitive plant. Um, you combine going from a very wet spring to a very dry summer. Uh, it's I, I'm not real surprised. What you're describing is absolutely the best way to try to get this plant recovered, and uh, you're talking about doing everything right. Exposing the root flare, Super Thrive would be a good option. The pruning doesn't really affect whether or not the plant's going to survive, but it'll certainly make it look a whole lot nicer. So um, I think she should take your advice. Tell her I said so. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I just thought maybe there was something else. Uh, she's at the point now. She put the Super Thrive on a week ago, uh-huh. and... I didn't tell her it's not immediate, but I'm before I call her back and say, "Hey, what? She's ready to pull them up. She sent, left me a voicemail that she was ready to pull it up, and I'm." Well, you know that's that's the choice. I suspect that she probably hasn't been watering correctly. She's probably been watering too often and not enough at one time. And unless she changes the care, those plants are going to get. She might as well pull them up. And, you know, it's just, it, it's, you know, life's too short uh, yeah. to, you know, to, to make real strict rules about such things. If she wants to start with something that's beautiful tomorrow, and that means pulling this out and replacing it, uh, that's okay with me. If she wants to invest the time in helping it to regrow, I mean, if the plant had sentimental value or which hazel's hard to find, you know, if she just wanted to perpetuate it just because it is beautiful fall color there are a lot of nice things i know howard garrett loves it up in dallas but uh mm-hmm. she's choosing a plant that rarely does well long term if you get very far south of dallas so it's just a question do you want to invest the time more than anything else uh i'm more concerned about time than money if she wants to invest the time in trying to get it to recover 
you're telling her the right things to do. If she is a I want it now person, <laughs> maybe it's best for her to pull it out and replace it. I, I can't make that decision. Okay. Well, well, that's good. It's just they're, they're really large shrubs. Mm-hmm. I thought they were pretty, and only one of them is dying so mm-hmm. or is affected. So I just thought maybe you might have some other advice. That would... Well, I think you're giving her exactly the right advice, and I definitely would pull the mulch away from all the plants. And I would use some Super Thrive along with some good organic fertilizer on all the plants. What you're telling her to do on her sick plants would probably help the other plants from getting sick. But I doubt that it's a contagious problem. But I would, you know, you sound like a pretty diplomatic person. Talk to her about how she's watering. Talk to her about how she's caring for them. Obviously, if they've grown that large, somebody, her or somebody, has been taking fairly good care of them. But you've got to adjust your care based on the weather. And this summer, despite the fact that water's expensive in Fredericksburg, is they've got some of the, oh, let's just say some water police that are a little gung-ho, more so than many places. But my suspicion is that the care she was giving them was fine in a typical year. But we get an extreme year going from extremely wet to extremely dry we're taking a plant that's sort of half-hearty there to begin with, and um, sometimes the results aren't real good. But uh, okay. the other plants that are healthy, I sure would like to see them stay that way because it is a good plant. It is a beautiful plant. Yeah. She has a sprinkler system around them. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, you're right. It could be that she just wasn't watering long enough or deep enough. Well, and sprinkler systems, in my opinion, don't water shrubs and trees. Sprinkler systems water grass. And uh, you almost have to have a separate zone or perhaps a separate system of drip irrigation because if you're relying on your sprinklers to water your shrubs, you're going to have a lot of dead shrubs. Yeah, not getting deep enough. Right. Okay. Well, I appreciate uh, the confirmation of what I told her. I just want to make sure I didn't leave something out that maybe she could try. You keep up your good preaching. You're, you're You're giving a good sermon out there. Well, I got a good teacher. You, I listen to you a lot. <laughs> Vicki, I appreciate it. You have a great Sunday. We'll talk again. This is a day to get out and enjoy. Mark would probably agree. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. <laughs> it's a good day to be outside, isn't it? Yeah, um, I'm ready to go out. Yeah, I, I, I almost, I'm, I'm not in winter mode yet, and I almost forgot the ten degree rule. <laughs> <laughs> or I did forget the ten. Geez, yeah, it, it was, it was, it hit thirty two this morning. Yeah, but. Um, and, and I, I thought about going out in the middle of the night to spray down the lima beans. And right. I have a question related to that. Uh-huh. We've, we've grown these Worcester Indian red pole lima beans for years. Right. And they're just, they're just, prol- I mean, they're, well, um, they get big. <laughs> <laughs> but by this time of the year, they're, you know, they're up six, six to eight feet and it's mm-hmm. like 30 inches of foliage at the top across. Right. Anyway, so the last few years, they've, they've produced this tremendous amount of foliage by this time, and very few beans is like much, much less than we used to get. And, and we've tried to figure that out for years and, and just scratching our heads. Well, well right now, they're, they're loaded more than they have ever been. Okay. And I have two theories. And one is um, the last few years, we've had a whole lot of basil mm-hmm. blooming this time of the year. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if maybe, and the bees seem to like the basil more than the beans that maybe the, the lima beans weren't getting pollinated because they're all on this basil. And this year we cut the basil back a few weeks ago. That may contribute, but I think the heat has more to do with it. We've had 
you know, past two or three summers have been excessively hot. This year seemed hot, but it was uh, it was mainly combined with drought. I have quit growing very many pole beans I, of any sort, limas or, you uh-huh. know, green beans or just about anything else. Um, it would be an interesting theory to try again next year, but... Um, yeah, I, right. just we've got lots of bees out there, and you certainly don't use pesticides or things that are going to harm the bees. So, I would be kind of surprised if your right. low production has really had to do much with pollinators. Um, I think it's probably been more weather, and uh, we, you know, once we once we started getting a little bit more rain, we had a nice drop in temperatures, and so far I have to say yeah. we've had a nice fall. I'm sure not ready for frost, and I hope your stuff didn't get hurt too badly, but we've had the best production weather for things like pole beans that we've had in several years. Uh, past two or three years, we've gone from extremely hot to a freeze, and uh, right. this right. year it's been stretched out a little bit, so... Um, basal yeah. theory is interesting, but I'm, I'm not convinced. The real, the really hot weather was kind of only during J- July right. out here. It, it, it kind of cooled a little bit. The other thing, now we've been drip irrigating them every other day, mm-hmm. but was it six weeks ago, we got that five inches of rain. Right. And, I, and I'm wondering whether maybe they're more susceptible to the calcium buildup in the soil or something like that. I don't think so. Okay. I, you know, I, I don't, the calcium is not really building up. The calcium is there because okay. we've got limestone in the soil. If anything, rainwater is slightly acidic. It's going right. to do more to dissolve and get rid of the calcium than right. it is going to intensify it. So, right. no, I'm, I'm right. not worried about calcium. No, I was thinking that, that five inches of rain would have flushed the soil out and given them a good water anyway. So, okay. Probably did that. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Well, we wouldn't necessarily keep growing them, but they're a, they're our sunblock on the <laughs> west side of the garden. They get eight feet high, and they're just complete wall of shade. And know? what a what a fun thing to grow for a sunscreen! And it goes away about the time you start welcoming the sun again. So, right, I, right. sounds like you got a good deal going. Have to ask you about they, your hummingbirds. Have they all moved on, or what are you um, still seeing? We I think we have one or two yet, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, Roberta is still having quite a number of them move through, not compared to your numbers, but uh, two, three, four, five of them. And it seems to be, uh, they just seem, I'm sure they're just migrating and through right. and stopping right. over on the way. But I told her I'd ask you next time we talked and, and, and right. see how many you're seeing right now. We're down to, yeah, yeah, just just a few handful, yeah. So um, um, we're down to mostly our, our winter birds. We you know, we have at least 50 cardinals that stay here year-round mm-hmm. because we have sunflower all year and water. They they just they stay here. Do you have any of the rufous hummingbirds uh, stick around for the winter, or are you just cool enough that they move um, on a little further no, south? No, it's, it's one winter. Um, I actually have a really neat slideshow. I, one winter we had a, an immature one show up in November, uh-huh. and it stayed all winter, and it, and it matured by the end of the winter. And it's and it's really cool. I mean, you get you got to see it get its color and all that. But otherwise, we you know we just don't see that many rufous. You know, that's, just a that's, now. Yeah, they're sure sure outnumbered by the ruby throats and violet chins and all the others. Right, but uh, right. you're my go-to guy for hummingbird questions. So uh, keep your fingers crossed. We'll hope that uh, that sunshine, um, hope the seaweed and all the things you do gave you gave you a little bit of protection from this first freeze. Yeah, I got another quick one. Okay, um, the the tomatoes for the I don't know when this started. We, we, we grew a lot, 
mostly Juliet's and a lot of Sun Golds. Mm-hmm. And, oh, the the black creme and the black cherry didn't do well at all. The, the black cherry had a lot of tomatoes, but they're nearly all rotted. Really, and similar on the black creme, they're just a flop. Anyway, um, so so particularly the the Juliet's they were producing now, the when they they turn from green to like camo, like mm-hmm. a mottled color. Right. And I and I kind of always thought it was bugs, but I finally figured out it's like no, there's no way bugs cause all that damage. It's like solid mottled. Well, and stink bugs do a lot of that, and they I'm not sure whether they inject something into the tomato or just what it is, but I see that modeling mainly where I have fought the blasted leaf footing bugs, and it intensifies after they leave. Uh, about the only other thing that would cause it would be virus, and uh, you know, Julius, I've well, I've never known it, never known them to get right. virus, and you'd usually see some expression of virus in the fruit, uh, in the foliage as well as in the fruit. So, right, um, right. do you have another now, theory as to what it might be? Yeah, I I was looking on the internet, and um, I think it was a university website. They said really cold temperatures could trigger that. I mean, because we had we had down low 40s like five or six weeks ago one night. Mm-hmm. Do you have any? Have you heard of that? <laughs> I I haven't okay. seen that. Uh, you know, I've okay. grown tomatoes okay. a lot of years, and right, right. I, okay. I I've seen a lot of things, but I've never seen an increase in okay. it. Yeah. You know, when we got the temperatures, not going to say it couldn't be, right. but I tend to be a little leery. Um, of a lot of this so-called university research. So be interesting to see, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, when in doubt, pick them early and bring them in and ripen them in the windowsill. Yeah. Well, it's it just so many of them turned that way. It just And we didn't have all that many bugs, but anyway. So, okay. um, and we had practically no leaf-footed bugs until after that big rain. Yeah. And just, yeah. just recently there's been bukus of them. And remember, okay. it doesn't have to be the adult, those little black-legged, red-bodied ones when they're really even at a very small size and they're running around in packs of 20 and 30, uh, they're doing a lot more damage than you realize, even though it isn't quite as visible. Yeah, okay. And you're pretty sure the uh, spinosad soap kills them because they always fly off. Yeah, it it kills it kills the larvae or kills the uh, adolescents very quickly, And uh, but I think the majority of the adults are going to die too. I don't think they'll come back. Okay, okay, okay. Last thing I had a comment. We last year I tried um, four or five different kale. Yeah. And um, I've got records on what lasted the longest and all that stuff. Uh-huh. Well, I think it's the improved dwarf Siberian. They sprouted about five or six weeks ago. Wow. A bunch of them sprouted. Uh huh. And and the, the the worms ate a lot of them, but they're surviving. So I was really surprised. So, so I'm going to actually go out and try to transplant some to where I want them. Spray some spinnerets uh, soap around there and. Uh, knock yeah. out the cabbage loopers too sounds like a good yeah. thing i was thinking about planting kale this afternoon myself if i get home with the last sunday that we're going to have evening daylight for a while so enjoy it right right okay. changes next week mark's always good to talk to you yeah, good to talk to you bob thanks give the puppies right. a pet and we'll talk again uh next up is going to be terry good morning terry good morning good morning yeah. you know the other day when the cold front hit uh, um in the morning there was all these, um, it was like caterpillars or worms that fell out of uh, the trees. Uh-huh. Do you know why this would occur? I've never seen that happen before. Well, they're, they're probably what you're looking at or what we call the fall webworms, and they simply got washed out of the trees. That was a very, 
very powerful storm. Thank God we didn't get the tomato, the uh, tornado that Dallas got. But uh, they're just right. they the the fall webworms don't make as big a web as the ones we see in the summer. There are plenty of them up there in the ash trees and the pecan trees, even in some of the oak trees. And we just had we had the the, the hardest rain, most driving rain we've had in a while. And they simply got yeah. washed out of the trees. They were there to begin with. They just got washed down on the ground. Okay, so I don't need to concern myself about <laughs> about the trees or anything. I sure wouldn't. Normal. No, I think it's I I think it's typical. I rarely use the word normal when I talk about Texas weather. I think it's <laughs> typical, and it's nothing to panic over. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thank you. You have a great day. You do the All same, right. Terry. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Goodbye. All right. Let's get back to gardening and. Uh, yeah, let's start with line number four. That would be Kathy. Good morning, Kathy. Hi, good morning. Good morning. With uh, I live here uh, outside of Bernie, uh, all the way out John's Road up on a hill. So mm-hmm. when that front came through, we got a tremendous amount of wind, uh, blowing rain and so forth. And our mountain laurel tree that's about uh, probably six and a half, seven foot tall, uh, we just planted it two years, not quite two years ago, and uh, it was leaning over. Uh, the wind was swirling and whipping uh, around, and I think it got a lot of water coming off of an area, uh, a roof area. <clears throat> and it just uh, it didn't break any of the uh, flare roots or anything like that. It was just leaning over. Mm-hmm. We uh, braced, uh, and then everything, all the root ball or the uh, the dirt that was around the root ball uh, and all that uh, was just washed off. And so we packed it with um, what we had. We could just uh, grab some uh, potting soil that we had, and so we uh, upped it and braced it uh, with a couple of stakes and side wires and packed it back down with that. But um, I was just wondering if there's anything that we need to do to help it, maybe some super thrive or something just to, Again, I don't want you to put any more liquid on the soil. That soil's already saturated, uh, probably from the rain. You're not very far from me. I got 69 100s, and some people around got more. I'd be thinking about some gutters because this is not the last time this is going to happen. And if you don't want to put up gutters, you can actually get. Uh, do you have a metal roof or shingle roof? What kind of roof? Metal. Okay. And we have had uh, them come out and. Uh, Price on the gutters, in, and that is one of the areas that we do. It's in a, it's in the north uh, side of the house, sure. and it does get a lot of runoff. Well, and you can actually, if you didn't want to go to the expense of gutters, you can very inexpensively get any good roofing company uh, to put up a what they call a deflector that oh, yeah. simply gets the uh, cost very little other than labor and simply pushes the water off to an area where it's not going to come down right on top of your mountain laurel, but. Uh, uh, it was, yeah, it was quite a storm. I'm glad this tree didn't break up. Uh, my concern with Mount Laurels, of course, is it got blown around to the point that it did some root damage, rocking it back and forth. Um, if it's right up against your home, uh, we've got a Mount Laurel over at the nursery that, again, is a little bit susceptible to that kind of damage. And what I did with that, I took some uh, cables, some of the plastic-coated cables, so it wouldn't cut the trunks. And just simply put two attachment points on the fence, and 
and pulled it back up to where it would not whip around as much, where it wouldn't be pushed over as much by the wind and the rain. But beyond that, when it dries out to the point that it needs water, if it dries out to the point it needs water, supposedly you have a very strong chance of rain again on Tuesday and Wednesday. And uh, it seems to be that we're moving into a pattern where we get rain out of a lot of the fronts. So um, you may not be wanting to, you know, put much of any additional moisture on it. You could always use a little bit of your Super Thrive as a foliar spray or a little bit of Garrett juice or something like that. But I think I'd make my first, you know, focus doing something to stop that, you know, that avalanche of water off the roof and uh, perhaps securing. I don't like staking. I don't really like guying. But if you can, uh, again, if your home is brick, you can put a little masonry anchor in there. Um, if you have another siding, maybe even easier, but I'd, I'd move, you know, a little ways away from, uh, you'll just have to look at the tree and see, but again, you can go down to any kind of hardware store, get some of this plastic coated cable and the clamps used to put it up. It'll be virtually invisible, so it's not going to look bad, but it'll sure reduce the, the whipping back and forth that uh, you may get in a severe thunderstorm because I can promise you it's not our last one. I don't know when the next one's coming, but yeah, we're going to have another one like that or worse. Well, we did. The, uh, we had that uh, clear tubing that we got from Home Depot uh-huh. uh, that we've used when we put some other trees in just to stabilize. But we get sure. some, we're like right on top of a hill, and the valley comes up, and it, we just get some real steep. Oh. You're, you're just due north of me if you're west of Tapatio Springs. Tapatio is almost directly across the hill from my ranch. I'm over on 46, so I'm very familiar with the weather that you're seeing. Yeah, it's great. And it's never done this before, but uh, this must have been the way it came. <laughs> uh, let's correct that. It's never done it before since you lived there, but I can promise you it's done it before, and I can promise you it'll do it again. Oh, yes. And uh, the other uh, question I had was some shrubs, or, oh, also on that mountain laurel, should we put just some regular uh, soil dug up from another area of the uh, property and kind of pack that back down in there? Because it just really wallowed out. Well, the, the only real problem is that the roots could dry excessively. I would tend to get a good living mulch and use that instead. Um, there's, it's, you know, hard to find real good soil and most mountain laurels are planted too deeply anyway. I would just probably get a good living mulch, which means it's going to have plenty of loose material to settle in around the roots and protect them. But, uh, I worry if you start packing a clay type soil, you're going to deprive the roots of oxygen and that's the worst possible thing you can do to a root system. Okay. And any particular brand or where to get this living mulch? If you need a quantity of it, run down I-10 to Stone and Soil Depot down there. Talk to Jeff if he's in there, Jeff Knight, and uh, he'll point you in the direction of the best mulch around. Okay. And then we want to uh, plant uh, some shrubs or some kind of a hedge. And, and the soil up here is just, you know, like solid rock. Non-existent. <laughs> well, yeah, and so we've had to uh, just to plant the uh, other. We brought in about six inches of soil to get our zoysia in and mm-hmm. our uh, regular plants. But in the e- the area that we want to plant this hedge is a screen from some neighbors that are going to be building. Um, I was wondering about some holly. I was thinking the deer would maybe leave that alone, uh, but I didn't know which type of holly might be best. 
Well, Yopon is by far the best if you're looking for something that's evergreen and deer-resistant. botanical name of it is Ilex vomitoria, and that tells you what happens when animals eat the leaves. So deer tend to leave it alone as far as eating. Now, you know, this is a time of year when your bucks are going to be beating things up with those antlers, both in marking their territory and also in rubbing the velvet off. So you're probably going to need to give them some your your new plant some protection i think uh the standard yopon would be a good choice uh, i like the variety called pride of houston is one of the prettiest ones and one of the ones that will be thickest while you're down at stone and soil getting your uh, your mulch take a look at some of their cut limestone i bought a whole uh pallet uh, last week i was in there about a whole pallet of six by six cut limestone that i was using to create some raised beds uh, you might look at that as a way of being able to contain the soil as well as create an attractive hill country look because you're going to have to get 12, 15 inches of soil in there um, if you get, if your plants, any plants are going to do well. And uh, it's either dry stack flagstone, but take a look at some of the cut stone they've got. It's really pretty reasonable in price and uh, uh, pretty easy to work with as well. Um, for your uh, beds, I would be using a good garden soil uh, or herb, herb garden soil or just tell them, tell them you're planting a vegetable garden and you'll get a better soil that will do real well for your yopons. Okay, and about uh, 6 to 8 inches, you think? No, I think, uh, I think 12 to 15 inches minimum if you're on a slab of rock. Now, if you have soil with a lot of rock in the soil, uh, that's, that's not an issue. The, the plants will, their roots will find their way down among the rocks. But if you're sitting on a slab of rock, uh, you're going to need to get a foot or more of soil up there for a plant. Plant that gets big enough to be a screen is going to have to have some room to grow some roots too. Okay. So, uh, like Nellie Stevens, uh... No, Nellie Stevens, not a good holly for the hill country. Uh, okay. All right. So that's... Look for the upright Yopon, and if you want to look at the best one, I think uh, look at the one that's called Pride of Houston. Your other choices, you could plant some more mountain laurels over there. Um, they're going to make you a nice evergreen screen. Uh, if you want to look at a different shrub, you might check out Evergreen Sumac. But uh, it's got to be something that's uh, deer-resistant and something that is a little more drought-tolerant. And something that's going to get big enough and dense enough for you. And I, I have to tell you, my two top choices would probably be either the Yopon Holly or the uh, or Mountain Laurels. Okay. Right. And then uh, also on the same note with our neighbor uh, across the road, he uh, had uh, about a year and a half, uh, let's see, about 15, 12 to 15 foot um, um, we call those things, uh, the Monterey Oak. Uh -huh. And uh, just to give you an idea, the, it was a, a tree place over off of Bandera Road, but they jackhammered to put the um, trees in, and I even had a jackhammer to put the uh, T-post in with the guide wires in there. Sure. <laughs> well, in my opinion, number one, bad idea to jackhammer a hole to plant a tree because chances are you're just planting a swimming pool. Uh, you get a big water, a big rain event, water's going to stand, you're going to kill the trees from lack of oxygen. Number two, if you plant a tree that has, uh, instead of calling it a top, let's call it a sail on top of it, S-A-I-L, 
and you put it up on that ridge and the wind hits it, there's no way you're going to keep that tree upright. Um, yeah. You know, you're going to have to <laughs> drill and put in the same kind of anchors they put in for telephone poles. Uh, so I'm not I'm not recommending a shade tree to you uh, if you're sitting on a slab of rock. For your purposes, I think a lower, denser screen is going to do better because I can almost promise you, I love Monterey oaks. I think they're an outstanding oak. But if you set that root ball on top of a place that gets a lot of wind, it's going to be on its side pretty soon, as you can probably visualize pretty easily. We were out there the other day trying to, up, he was out of town, and we were trying to upright it. And mm-hmm. we had it, uh, you know, a tie off to our trailer hitch, and we were like <laughs> pulling it. It was all we could do, and the wind just kept hitting it. Uh, losing proposition. It was scary. But when we looked down in the hole, we thought, well, we'll dig the hole a little deeper, try to just, you know, get that root ball thrown back in a hole. There wasn't any digging. There there was, I know why those guys were out there jackhammering, yeah. because there was no getting a shovel down. Well, now you're, you're dealing with a lack of gray matter in somebody's brain when they're trying to jackhammer a hole in a solid mass of rock. If they make that hole deep enough to break through the rock and get it back into soil, which might be 100 feet down, then maybe there'd be some value to that. But unless they're going to dig a hole as big as a swimming pool and perhaps put in some sort of uh, sump, to be sure that it doesn't stay too wet, you're just looking at a total waste of time. Uh, trees aren't going to make it. Uh, they may live long enough to outlive the warranty on the trees, but long-term it's going to be a bad deal. Yeah, that, uh, we were going to try to help him out. He's an older uh, gentleman, mm-hmm. and uh, get back over there. But I'm thinking even if we got it back in a hole, it's and, and we're like, how do we drive the rebar? We were going to do your technique, how yeah. instead of guide wires, we were going to just mm-hmm. put two braces flat on the soil, and then maybe hold it down with a, a loop of bar, um, uh, rebar. But, but th- we had a sledgehammer out there. There's just no... Yeah, and, and you're not going to accomplish anything because the thing, in order for a tree to become stable, it's got to be able to put a good root system into the ground, and there's no ground for it to put a root system into. It was, it was yeah. still, all the roots were still yeah. in the root. Somebody ball. sold them a bill of goods, and um, unfortunately... Um, he got some bad advice. He got some bad work as far as planning goes, and sadly, it's just a bad idea. I hate to yeah. hate to not sugarcoat it, but sometimes you just have to tell it like it is. Yeah. Oh well, thank you, Bob. I appreciate the advice, and and we'll tell him to stay in prayer and chainsaw the tree down. <laughs> <laughs> you call anytime. I can help with advice, Kathy. It's always a pleasure. All right, see Dr. Kirby coming into the producer's room, so you know what's going to be up at the 11 o'clock hour. But right now, um, Ann, if you just heard a click and a change in volume on your phone, I'm talking to you. Good morning. Bob? That's me. Good morning. Yes, ma'am. Loud and clear. Hi. Uh, I've been having trouble with, I think, bees and yellow jackets. Um, I have them in the patio. I only have fern in there. I don't have no flowers. Uh, uh-huh. I guess they have a nest in there. Um, is there any way, you know, to kill them? See, I went in there. I was I was sweeping and all that. I was going to plant some plants, but uh-huh. I can't because the the bees and you know they they just came out and they started you know, attacking me. You know, it's well, like already two or three times. Every time I go in there, I don't know where they're hiding. Yep. You know, they're simply looking for a warm place to spend the winter. 
Um, the, the wasps at least, and those are probably the main things you're dealing with, uh, bees, not so much, but the wasps, uh, they are just looking for a place to spend the winter and then come out and, um, uh, start a whole new colonies next year. And gosh, it's, I can tell you if you'll put a little orange oil in water and just mist with that. Uh, you will both repel them. You will kill the ones that get into it. I don't want okay. you to see you out there with the poisonous stuff like, you know, all the, uh, the insecticide raid products and all of these uh, things. Okay. Uh, those things are too damn toxic for you or your pets or your plants. Okay. But if you'll simply oh. put, uh, get a hand sprayer with water, put uh, maybe a tablespoon of orange oil in there, and you're going to find that's going to be about as good a flying insect killer as you can find anywhere. Okay. Because someone had told me to get, like, um, soapy water and vinegar. Would that work? or would that Soapy, soapy water, water will work. Yeah, soapy water will work if you know where the nest is. Uh-huh. Um, uh, spinosad, this spinosad soap that I've uh, been talking about for so many uses, it's great to knock them down. I mean, it will knock them out of the air. You'll have to, wearing good shoes, you'll have to step on them to eliminate them because I tried recently just to see because my business partner told me how well it worked, and I said, well, you sure they don't come back to life? So I knocked one of the red wasps out of the air with it, uh, went down, I watched it, landed on some lumber I had in the area I was working and. All of a sudden, it came back to life and flew off. So that spinosad oh, soap, wow. and you can get that already mixed up in a little hand sprayer. So uh, it knocks them down almost instantly, but it takes uh, the footprint of the gardener to be sure they don't get up and come back after you. Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, because I have all kinds of soap, like dishwashing soap, yeah. you know, all kinds of you know liquid soap, and I have vinegar. I thought to mix it up and, and use that, but... See, I don't have no dogs or cats sure. or anything like that, but I do have those plants. So if I use yeah. like Raid or Hot Shot, yeah, and I you have you, plants, you so. have you. I don't want Ann breathing that stuff either. I've not tried right. the vinegar. You know, it uh, vinegar can be toxic to plants. So uh, if you're going to oh, use okay. a vinegar, use apple cider vinegar. Don't use that white uh, vinegar that oh, you uh, get. Apple cider. Okay. Yeah, apple cider so is. It, it's a natural so vinegar. I, I hit I hit the plants. I'm, I'm going to kill the plant, right? There. With regular vinegar, you would damage the plants. Vinegar. Yeah. Now, if you get the oh. apple cider vinegar, like Bragg's is uh, a very good uh, form of it. Uh, if you want to try that, you can try that. But I think all you really need is, uh, you know, a surfactant, a detergent, soap, and water. Uh, it's probably going to do the job. It's not going to kill them, but it's probably going to knock them down. If you go out to buy something, I would buy some of the spinosad soap, which comes in a little ready-to-use sprayer. Oh, okay. Or the orange oil. No, or orange no, no. oil and water will work just fine. Don't get it too concentrated because if you get it too concentrated, it can burn your plants as well. But uh, at a dilute strength, it'll not bother your plants, but it will bother the wasps. Okay, and, and now I also have some roaches in the patio. I think you said something about wine. I don't know, red wine or white wine, pretty like <laughs> no, in a little tray. No, you that wasn't that me. A long, a long time ago, I remember. No. That, that was probably... Uh, um, Hawaiian punch that Malcolm Beck used to use oh. as a, and he put oh. it out as a trap. He would take a little, you know, wax paper cup 
and put it out, and he said the roaches would call, crawl into it and drown by the hundreds. But, no, it was Hawaiian punch that he was using. Oh, oh I thought it was wine. He said no. that he drank some of it, and then the rest. I, I remember you, told, you said that a few years back, and I said, yeah. maybe I'll get a cheap bottle no. of wine and just... With, no, you know, buy buy good wine, them. buy good no. wine and enjoy it yourself. Get Hawaiian oh. <laughs> punch if you want to make a trap for the roaches. You can also, uh, and don't put this in your plants because boric acid is harmful to plants as well. But a very good bait that you can make yourself for roaches is just mix about half and half boric acid, which you can get at the grocery store with uh, granular sugar. Uh, put it out, you know, put it in a little cup or something out of sight. Uh, bottle caps or something like that and that is a very okay. good and very effective ant bait but again don't use it outside don't use it where it's going to get rained on and don't use it on your plants because boric acid is harmful to plants but boric harmful. acid and sugar is a very safe trap to use but if you want to honor malcolm's memory and do it his way just get yourself <laughs> some hawaiian yeah, punch hawaiian and punch, right? yeah put it out in, the, <laughs> in some little cups <laughs> okay so, uh, okay, so I'll get some board acid and kind of put it, you know, away because I think yeah. we said we're going to get rain Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't yeah. know if we're going to get that much. But well, they, 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 that's going to be better. Yeah, use it inside away from rain, but half and half with sugar and boric acid will make you a real nice roach bait. Okay, and then the other one is the, the orange oil. Don't put too much water. Don't put too know. much orange oil. Put put like a oh, teaspoon. Yeah, about a one or two teaspoon of orange oil in a quart size sprayer. Do I get that, you know, like where you are, the shades of green, or can I go to H-E-B to get orange oil? It's a lot more expensive at H-E-B, but go to any nursery. Any good nursery is going to have it. Okay. Okay, great. We'd love to see you, but I'm not going to make you drive across town for something you might buy in the neighborhood. But any good, reputable nursery will have the, it's by Medina. It's a company that packaged the best orange oil, and uh, we're not the only good nursery around. We think we're the best, but... uh, it's you'll find orange oil lots of places but what they're going to sell in heb is about twice as expensive as what you'll pay in the nursery oh and your fall asters do you have any there at chase of green i've been trying fall asters we have sold october and november yeah we've sold dozens of them i think we still have some and i'll probably be getting more tomorrow but uh okay. yeah they are so beautiful yeah, every time i call and say hey we're going to get some and then i see i you know when i do go or haven't gone out there yet no we don't have any so i'll call before well, i go out today you know? this week for we participate in the uh, event to support cancer uh, that is called partners card my business is a, my uh, business partners and cancer survivor and we uh-huh. support this and partners cards a neat deal for 10 days in the fall you buy this card the money goes to uh, the cancer center and then everything you buy at lots of different businesses is 20 percent off this has been an extremely busy week in the plant business with people buying Uh shopping with their partners cards so probably going to slow down today's the last day to use your partners card so uh (laughs) chances are this coming week will not be quite so frantic and it'll be easier to keep the fall asters in stock so uh uh, you can call over there you can call over there uh now and ask them if we have some we had some yesterday but um no telling what's left but we'll definitely be getting more Right, because I know a lot of people that get two or three. Usually, I want like two or three, or maybe four. You know. I you know. know. I've got. Wendy told me we've got a lady who wants a dozen. So. Uh, oh wow. Yeah, but we get them That's in several sizes. We get them in little four-inch pots, which are very expensive. We get them in one-gallon cans. We even get them in five-gallon containers, 
and uh, we just have to see what's available. But they sure are a fun oh, plant to plant and I, great time to I've plant. Never seen it. I've never seen them in five gallon. Oh, okay. So I usually I usually get a one gallon. Yeah. So the, the five gallon the five gallon it's 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 pretty it's pretty big, right? A five gallon. Yeah, you have to dig a much bigger hole, and they're much more expensive. So one gallon's a real good size to start with. And I if think plant- a one gallon would be better. Yeah. Well, because the five gallon that that hole has to be pretty, well, no, pretty <laughs> deep, pretty solid. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Digging, digging, digging. Yeah. Okay. Well, Ann, I'm going to let you go here, and let me get the other Ann in real quickly. Good morning, Ann. Hello. First of all, I'd like to thank you for your show. I know you have people who know a lot, but I don't. So here goes. We have a crepe myrtle that's planted about five feet from our house, four Uh or five feet. Is that too close? Is that going to cause problems? Well, there are many different sizes of crepe myrtles. I mean, some crepe myrtles grow two feet tall, some of them grow five feet tall, some of them grow 30 feet tall. If you have one of the really big ones, I'm not worried about the crepe myrtle hurting your foundation. That's that's not a problem from five feet right. away. But if it's one of the bigger ones, it could spread out to where it's rubbing on your shingles, rubbing on your eaves, rubbing on your soffit. And that might cause some damage. You're just going to have to prune a little bit more if uh, if you have one of the bigger ones. But you know, I I I it just all depends on how large a crepe myrtle variety is, whether it's going to be any problem or not. I don't think it's going to be a serious problem. But uh, if it is something like Basham's Party Pink or one of these ones that gets really large, then you're going to have to prune occasionally to keep it away from your roof. But don't worry about it. I think we have the kind we're going to have to prune. Um, Can you recommend any landscapers? We live out by Fair Oaks. I wish I could. No, I I really, I know some good arborists, um, but landscapers, I just, Every time I recommend somebody, they get so busy that pretty soon they're not doing a good job because they take on more work than they can do. And um, I wish I had a name to give you out there. You might check with somebody like Hill Country African Violets, which is just a little ways down the road from you there. And they don't do landscaping, but they may have people that they can recommend. But talk to Ken or any of his staff over at Hill Country African Violets, and he can probably point you in the right direction. He's just, you know, five miles down the road from you there. Right, just right. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're sure welcome, Ann. Thank you. All right. Let's finish up the, the, the plant show. Get ready for the pet show. But let's finish up the plant show talking to Maggie. Good morning, Maggie. Oh, I'm so excited that I got you today. I'm so glad um, you did. <laughs> I live in a neighborhood where we took a stretch of one of our main streets. It was all cluttered with underbrush and so on, and we mm-hmm. did a firewise thing, like about 20 feet back from the wor- road. Congratulations to you. That's one of the smartest things you can do. Uh, do you live in what we call the WUI, the Wildland Urban Interface? I'm not sure about that, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you're, I'll look you're, it up. Yeah, you're 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 out of the country, so to speak. I, yeah, this you're going to hear so much more about this in the future. And uh, I mean, I was I heard about it when I was up in Wyoming. I've been following some things up in uh, Colorado, and it is becoming so important for neighborhoods to become firewise and do just what you're talking about. So well, my congratulations to you. To do, yeah. Forestry Service was all for it, and they helped us figure it out. 
now we've got this 20-foot wide space, and I don't know how many hundreds of yards long. Uh-huh. And we put out a bunch of wildflower seeds uh, Saturday, uh-huh. that was yesterday. Uh, and, and somebody said, well, we were going to put out rye grass to fill in, you know, where the dirt was and sure. so on. And we were said, no, the rye grass will shade out the wildflower seed. Mm-hmm. So we're wondering, well, okay, now what do we do? We have a lot of deer, uh-huh. and maybe if we can plant something that they could eat, uh, like browse up near the tree line, or what do you suggest we fill in? Will the will the ryegrass shade out the wildflowers? Yes. We'd rather have wildflowers. Yeah, okay. it, it, that's the problem. Wildflowers do not it, compete with warm weather grasses because wildflowers grow mainly when it's cool. But unfortunately, right. cool weather grasses like rye, like wheat, like, um, you know, oats, things like that, uh, unfortunately, they do compete with your wildflowers. So if anything, just plant more wildflowers to get it thicker. Now, once we get beyond the cold weather, once we start getting into the warmer season, there are some very compact sedges. There are some very compact uh, perennial grasses, which are, you know, because uh, it, it, one of the wildland fire seminars I went to one time, they were pointing out that the height of the flames will be approximately two and a half times as high as whatever's growing. So you cut ah. down, you know, your eight foot bushes so you avoided 20 foot flames. It's not going to be nearly so serious if you have a grass that's two inches tall, and even if it should burn, it's not going to be over four or five inches high, and it's certainly much more manageable from a firefighter's standpoint. But for the winter months, uh, not going to be much you can put out there that will not compete with your wild uh, wildflowers. And wildfire, wildflowers, pretty similar. But uh, wildflowers, but as we move into the warmer season, then you're going to be looking at some of the low-growing sedges, some of the low-growing native grasses that will give you some nice vegetation but will not interfere with your wildflowers now or in the future. Okay. So where do we find out what those are? Um, growing native grasses and sedges. Um, you can talk to Douglas King Seed Company uh, here in San Antonio. You can talk to Native American Seed up in Junction. Uh, there are a number of companies, uh, you know, that, that specialize in this sort oh, of okay. thing. And uh, there's some real good plant lists out there about fire-resistant, fire-retardant plants, because I'm sure you're going to put some things back in there, but there are some plants that just burn like, you know, gasoline, like rosemary, and others that have a more succulent stem like red yucca and things like that that will work right into what you're trying to do uh, to make your neighborhood more uh, fire-safe. Oh, that's great. Oh, this is wonderful. What else do I need to know? Uh, you probably need to talk to uh, your nearest fire department because they probably are going to have some brochures and things on uh, fire-resistant plants. I picked up some from the uh, uh, Bernie Fire Department that, quite frankly, I haven't had time to look at yet. Uh, if there's something that is possible to reproduce and share, I will definitely do so. Oh, that's great. I appreciate that. Well, you've been very helpful, and I thank you so much, and thank you for your encouragement on our little project. (laughs) Well, thank you for what you're doing. I hope a lot of people will become a little smarter that way. And you get out and have a good Sunday.